two, one. Okay, start over. Hey, YouTube theologians, Pastor Wolfmiller here, joined by Pastor Andy Packer, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, Collinsville, Florida. Right? Close enough. <laughs> uh, answering your questions. If it, everyone's going to go to Collinsville, Florida, and be like, "Where's Pastor Packer?" <laughs> I don't even know if there is a Collinsville, Florida. All right, what do you got for us this week? Well, we had a couple of um, messages sent to us in the comments on the last YouTube video. The first one was in regards to something I said about um, the no creed, but Christ kind of thing that everyone has a confession. And she wanted to know, well, if we have the Bible and we just have what the Bible says, why can't we just have that as our confession? Why can't we just say this is our confession? And um, my quick response to that would be, well, the moment you say something like Jesus is Lord and someone says, who is Jesus? What does it mean? He's Lord. You're doing theology and making a confession. You can't avoid it. You can't just say, here's some Bible verses. This is what we believe. Someone's going to say, what do those mean? And the moment you start doing that, you're making a confession. And you're. And so all we did was take those confessions and put them into a book and say, this is our confession. Um, that would be my, my short answer to that. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, that verse, Matthew 10, is the key here. So we, we know the scriptures are the where we draw our theology. It is the fountain of all truth and it's sufficient for everything that we need for life and for salvation the the what happens is that the devil will come up with an error and and try to bring that into the church's confession and so the church is always confessing the truth from the scriptures against the errors that the devil brings and so to clarify the truth of the scriptures uh we're we're bringing those scriptures to bear at the particular error so if someone were to say, hey, this is true apart from the scriptures, we said, no, no, that's but, but the, the church's confession is is specifically bringing that truth of the scripture, preaching the truth of the scripture against the errors that that come against it. So that's um, I think that's a helpful clarification. The old Lutherans talked about the the norma normans and the normus normata. So the the normed norm and the norming norm. So the confessions of the church, like the creed, that's a normed norm. It's a confession, but it stands underneath the scripture. The scripture is what gives us our doctrine and the, all the confessions of the church stand under the scripture as servants to the scripture against the particular errors that we face. So, I mean, you have questions like marriage now, questions about what's true about marriage. Well, we confess the scriptures, but the, the we, we bring the clarity of the scripture to bear on our current situation. And that's what the church is always called to do as we make the good confession. Right. The moment you start explaining what scripture means, you're either correct or incorrect. So your confession is always there. It's just a matter of whether you have a good confession or a bad confession. So the moment you start having a discussion about what the Bible says, you're making a confession. You just can't avoid it. Um, so the church has always said, hey, these are what we actually confess together. If, you, if you're on board with this and you are confessing the truth with us, if not, then then you aren't. The second question was... There was a couple things in there, but the main one was that we misnumber the Ten Commandments because we don't have the second commandment as don't make for yourself any graven images. So um, I'll throw that to you. That should be a quick one, but um, someone asked and said we were we were wrong for having it as our part of our first commandment. I appreciate that. So if you were just to look at the commandments, this is one of these whiteboard things. I wonder if I have a whiteboard I can haul in. You were, if you just got the text from Exodus 20 uh, or Deuteronomy uh, 5, 6, you would just have, you, and you tried to number them. They're not numbered in the text. I think you would probably have 13 things there. 
Yep. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make any images. Uh, I punish the children to the third and fourth generation, but show grace to a thousand. Shall not use my name in vain. Shall not remember the Sabbath day, honor father and mother, except all the way down. You shall not covet uh, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So if you just were natively listening, I might think you'd have 13 commandments. But there's two places in the scripture that talks about the 10 words. And so from the Holy Spirit, we know that the Lord numbered the commandments as 10, but he didn't put the numbers in there for us. Yeah, yeah, so we've so. got to take these 13 statements and figure out how to put them into 10. It's nice that the difference between the Deuteronomy numbering and the Exodus numbering, it's actually one is out of order. So in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or manservant, maidservant, etc. In Deuteronomy, it flips those first two, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, etc. Mm. So that it shows that the Lord is not so concerned about the numbering. So if someone wants to number differently, we do not break fellowship over different numberings of the Ten Commandments. It's not something that um, holds us to the scripture. But the iconoclasts, the Reformed, have always made the argument that, um, that, that we have the wrong numbering to exclude the prohibition of images. <laughs> and so that the use of images in the church is allowed. We have that idolatry and we renumber the Ten Commandments to get to that idolatry. To them, I simply say the Orthodox have the same numbering that you do, and it has not prevented them from having images. I mean, they've got images everywhere. They, you can't escape the imageries that they have. So there's four different... I always think this is one of the most boring things to think about, but people are really love it. There's four different ways of numbering the commandments. There's the Jewish way, the Roman Catholic way, the Lutheran way and the Eastern Orthodox slash reformed way. And the, here's the, some of the key differences in the synagogue. They say the first commandment is I, the Lord, your God brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the, and that's a statement. It's not a command. Actually, they just take the preface of the commandments, make it the commandment. Then they take, uh, you shall have no other gods and you shall not make any images. And they put them together like the Roman Catholics and like the Lutherans. So those first two prohibitions belong together for everyone except for the Orthodox and the Reformed. And then the Jewish numbering goes down and they put also the last two together that we would separate the covet commandments. Uh, they put those as one commandment. So that's how in the synagogue they come up with 10. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't have the preface. It keeps the prohibition, uh, no other gods and the prohibition of idolatry together. And it goes all the way down. And then they follow the Deuteronomy numbering. Number nine for them is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. They say that's an intensification of the sixth commandment. Mm -hmm. And then you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. That's an intensification of the seventh commandment. And that's nice. Uh, the Lutherans follow the Exodus numbering. We take the pro, just like everybody else, the prohibition for no other gods and idolatry. Those belong together. And then we follow the Exodus ordering. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So that has to do with, um, that has to do with, with, getting something by a show of right, manipulating the law to your own advantage. And then the ninth, the 10th commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, ox or donkey. So that has to do with enticement. All the things that your neighbors have, that your neighbor has that have legs, we entice them to come over to us. So, uh, so we follow the Exodus numbering. The Orthodox and the Reformed do it like this. They, they separate the first, the first part, they separate into two. You shall have no other gods. And you shall not make any images. And then they all roll down and they put the last two together. 
So they're, the Orthodox and the Reformed are the only two of all four ways of numbering them who separate those first two. Now, we do not say that, we do not act like the Lord said, hey, don't commit idolatry, don't make images and worship them. If a, uh, everybody who's a Christian would forbid worshiping images, uh, there's a big difference, though, between the prohibition of worshiping images and the prohibition of the use of images. And this has to do with the iconoclastic controversy, which happened in the Eastern Orthodox Church, also happened in the Reformation times. And the basic response of the church has been, look, when the Lord made himself an image, when he took upon himself a human form in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, and now it would be wrong to not have pictures of Jesus. Now, we don't know what it, Jesus looked like. There's a whole big deal about the Shroud of Turin, which a lot of people get into. I just can't get excited about that. But uh, but it would be, if we, th that Jesus can be represented by, by pictures. Great. But of course, we don't worship those images, make offerings to those images. Uh, th those images point to the reality of God in the flesh for us. Yeah, uh, I've come out of reform circles where it was taught that images of Jesus are a lie because we don't know what he looks like. Um, that goes to another extreme where you're, well, but he did take on flesh, right? So if he took on flesh, then he was here in an image. Like you're almost pushing it to extreme where you're almost denying the incarnation if you're like, well, we can't even have images of Jesus because we don't know exactly what he looked like. But the point is to teach that he came in the flesh, not that this is exactly what he looked like. I don't know anyone who looks at them and says, this is exactly what they, Jesus looked like. But we know it represents that he came in the flesh for us in our salvation. And that's why we have them. Yep. No more easy questions today. Sorry. Okay. This one, um, this is a long one. I'm going to summarize it. It's a follow-up to something you said about homosexual temptation. Um, it's how he phrased it. So he came out of that lifestyle, um, was saved by the grace of God in 2017, and has been completely celibate for about five years. Uh, and this includes absence from pornography. That his question, though, is really comes down to the ministry. He wants to know if someone who's come out of that would still be fit to go into pastoral ministry, or because of something you said, there's a particular danger and struggle with that sin, with that temptation, that perhaps that's something he should avoid. And so that's that's where he's struggling. I, I've summarized a lot of this, but uh, that's where he's coming from. So that's, that's his question. Well, God be praised for the thoughtfulness and for the deliverance experience. That's phenomenal. It's important for us to, in the church to remember that uh, the Lord is in the conversion business. He, he changes people. He changes people's hearts. He changes people's lives. And sometimes we forget that. We just think that, well, just like that, we look at the people outside the church and like, well, they'll always be outside the church. Well, who, you know what? We are not we are not authorized to despair of the Lord changing people. And it doesn't matter the temptation or the, or the trouble that we have. The Lord is in the business of rescuing people. It's one, I think it's really telling that our secular culture wants talk of conversion away from particular sexual orientations, for example, to be illegal. Uh, that's so wild to me. I, I was so, so like, you see all that, and this is a little slightly off topic, but very interesting to me where, you know, the church has, w wants to help people counsel people through these difficulties. 
And the world wants that to be illegal. You can't say to someone who is tempted to homosexuality, hey, we can we can help you with that. We can change. You can um, live either a celibate life like this individual's chosen or um, uh, or even a, a life in the family and become a parent and so forth. And that's supposed to be illegal. I wonder if it's illegal to go the other direction. Like what if a guy came to some secular school counselor and said, I'm straight, but I'd rather be gay. Can you help me? If I wonder if that is illegal, like if it's illegal to go that direction, I don't think it is. It's only illegal to come back the other because the whole, the whole agenda of the, um, of the, of uh, what, 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 what used to be called gay rights. Is that still what we call this? I, I, no I think it has a different anymore. It used what used to be called gay rights. The whole agenda spiritual agenda is to buffer the conscience from anything that would speak against it, right? You're, you're trying to create a wall between, between God's right and wrong and my guilty conscience. And so nothing can get close. Okay. So we are in, we have the hope always of conversion, not only from death to life, but also from the desires of the flesh to the life of the spirit. And so the Lord is always working this in us. And God be praised to hear the work in, in this particular uh, individual, in this young, in this man, man's life. Now, to, the point that I made before was that our unique temptations require a unique stewardship. So if I, for example, am tempted to greed, let's just, let's just, let's just imagine this, then I, I know that about myself. And so I'm going to, I'm always going to be watching out for that temptation to show up for um, if there's a chance to be uh, generous and I refuse to do it, or if I am, I'm looking at my uh, account balances too often to see how things are going. I just, I'm aware of that, that temptation that's in me. And, and I know that it calls for a special stewardship. If I am, if I am tempted to lust, uh, I know in the mentioned pornography before as a good example, if I'm tempted to that, then I want to be very careful um, that I don't give myself opportunity to to look with lust or to let my imagination run away with itself. So we're called to a particular stewardship of our own temptations. And uh, and I believe that that is true, especially of sexual sin. Paul says that every other sin a man commits outside the body, but this sin he commits inside the body. So there's a unique damage that's done with sexual sin and even more so with homosexual temptation. The reason I, I think this is because of what Paul says in First Corinthians, or sorry, in Romans chapter one, where he talks about how giving up the uh, the well, giving up the worship of God and worshiping the Creator is then giving up also the natural use of the man for the woman, a woman for the man, so that there's a certain giving up, and I think this is probably at a cultural level or uh, um, societal level there's a not just the individual level but there's a certain giving up that then it we're handed over to that particular temptation and what we realize with with homosexual temptation is it's not it's it's not the abuse of nature in the sense that or the what it's not the the misuse of what is natural so for example if a man has a lust for a woman that's it's natural for a man to desire a woman. It becomes sinful when that woman is not his own wife, but it's in, it's in the same direction. It's, it's too much, but it's in the same direction. Homosexual temptation is going the other way. It's 
so there's the um there's wanting the wrong thing and then there's wanting the wrong kind of thing and so that it's a unique and particular temptation uh and so it calls for a careful stewardship now does the stewardship of that particular temptation exclude someone from the pastoral office that i believe i i think that question can only be answered in the context of pastoral care in other words the the caution with which the person is writing the question is a i think is a right caution uh and it's good to have that caution in in my own reading of the question it might be that caution that is that is precisely what enables a person to be then be a pastor like look here's my this is difficult for me this is a struggle for me i'm aware of this thing i'm fighting against it constantly by prayer and the work of the holy spirit i want to be accountable uh to my own um to my family and friends uh, and against this temptation and and with those kind of things in place say is it good for me then to pursue being a pastor so i don't think i do not think it excludes someone but it is a matter of deep deep concern but i think the deep concern that the person has who's asking the question is is really right and healthy i don't you have thoughts about that yeah i agree with um the way you approach that i think the way he, the way he wrote it seems like he understands his weaknesses and his particular temptations and is currently on guard on them so so that's good uh, i did want to add maybe to distinguish that between someone who is a pastor who falls into that sin um Right, like like a pastor who commits adultery while in office, or falls into um, homosexual temptation, and, and they they sin in that way. That there is a difference between someone who's that's pre-conversion and now they've converted and they're a Christian, and someone who's in the office and commits those. Because then you disqualify yourself from office, which is a different thing. Um, and I, the way I hear this discussed, and sometimes in our circles, is we flatten the distinction and say there's no distinction between this young man. And someone who's in the office who does this, but the Bible says there is a distinction. Mm -hmm. um, he did that before he was a Christian. Now he's converted. Um, now he's looking into pastoral ministry. Whereas a pastor who's in the office has lost the public trust and abused his office, and um, that office is then taken away. It doesn't mean he can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean right. he's not, you know, can't be a godly man after that. But it does mean that he's made himself unfit for that particular office. Um, and, and that's, that's okay too. Um, it doesn't mean they're, we look down upon them. It just means you can't, you can't go back to that. Cause you've, you've, you've lost that. Um, right. and there's temporal consequences sometimes for these things that can't be undone. Right. That's right. So, the, you know, the, so the, the Catholic church has this one, I'm going to concede one advantage to them. It's actually a disadvantage, but I'm going to concede a slight advantage. And that is that because they think that the absolution and, and confession and absolution is to deal with the temporal effects of sin. They always have to listen to a sin and say, well, what are the what are the, what are the temporal consequences of that particular sin? And the Lutheran pastor, because we're in the business of absolving sins in before the throne of God and not so much interested in like how many Hail Marys is it going to take for you to make this up or whatever. Yeah. We're, we, the, the, then the disadvantage is we're not often thinking of the of the consequences of sin and the consequences of particular temptations and things like that. So each sin, as we are called to this sort of unique battle, each one of us with our own sinful flesh, there's a there is a uniqueness to it, and the stewardship that the Lord calls us to is a 
um, it, it, it's not a one size fits all. And each and every sin in some way is unique. Uh, every temptation is somehow unique. And so we're paying, we're, we're trying to pay attention a little bit to that while knowing that it's forgiven, also knowing that it does damage in different ways. And knowing that my my sinful flesh can be used against the people that the Lord has given to me. So the devil wants to use my sin against Carrie, against my children, against my congregation, against my neighbors. I'm aware of that. So I'm called to this battle against the flesh for the sake of my neighbor. So I'm not given this office of father and pastor and husband for my own sake, but for the people that the Lord has given me to serve. So knowing my own weakness with fear and trepidation, considering the offices that the Lord has given me, I'm doing the best to, to do these things. As someone's considering the office, one of the things they're asking is, is my, are, are my, is my sinful flesh something that will, that will become a burden and a scandal for the people that the Lord will send me to? Or can I bless them through my own, through my own fighting the flesh? So that, that's, that's probably the point where the question is, is, um, is being, is it brings us and i think that can only be answered in the context of pastoral care so to the person who's, who sent the note you're just gonna have to spend a lot of time with your pastor uh thinking through these things and what they mean uh, i think it's helpful too the way you, you talked about the distinction among sins because that's another thing we kind of flatten in our day and age that all sins are exactly the same well every sin can equally damn us to, to hell and is worthy of <laughs> eternal punishment it doesn't make them all exactly the same they do have different effects on others, effects on ourselves. They have different consequences. And um, knowing that, uh, Chemnitz says we, we must impress that upon people, that there's a difference um, among sins, among types of sins, so that we know what we're dealing with in our own hearts and lives and when we're giving pastoral care to others. So we don't treat everything just as like it's flatlined and it's just a sin and it's the same as every other sin. That's it's just not true. We know that from our own lives, our own experience. Tell us that certain sins uh, affect us differently others yeah. differently um that's right so jesus says if you call your brother a fool you've murdered him and our and what jesus is doing is he's teaching us that not to say oh i just i just called him a fool at least i didn't murder him no jesus is trying to sensitize our conscience to those to those sins that are in our heart but we are so sin we do it the other way well i already <laughs> called him a fool i might as well put an ice pick in his face or whatever you know no no i mean i would much rather you call me a fool than pull out the the axe you know they're very very different consequences on earth so so we need to be so the purpose of that because people use that all the time like to excuse sin like well i've already looked with lust i might as well no yeah. no it should go the other way around that i look at my own lust i look at my own bitterness i look at my own hatred and, and the violence in my own heart and it it brings as much shame and guilt as actually following through as if I, you know, what I could do if I could get away with it. it this is the, the sensitive conscience that the Lord wants us to have. And, and this is important too, because I, I think that, have we talked about this, uh, Pastor Packard, uh, um, my idea of the thermometer of the conscience? I don't think so. So if you have, if, if just to take like uh, the, the fifth commandment and say like, what's a really bad way to break the fifth commandment is genocide or something like that, mass murder. And then the, like the least damage, uh, the, the least way to damage the conscience would be 
maybe anger in the heart, hidden anger that you don't even let get out. It's not even a temper. It's just it's just boiling in the heart there. So so you have this kind of scale between these two and up and down the scale is like maybe there's a short temper. Maybe there's brawling. Maybe there's violence. And my my conscience is hardened at a certain point. Like maybe I've got a bad temper and but and it doesn't bother me when I yell at the kids or something. So Mike, it doesn't activate the conscience if I sin under here. Mm -hmm. Now, if I, if I actually went up, hauled off and, and hit somebody, that would probably bother my conscience. But down here, it's like below the radar of the conscience. Up here, it would, it would trouble me. So I think two things are happening on this little scale. One is the, the devil underneath the kind of radar of the conscience. This is bad drawing. Underneath here, the devil has me. I don't feel my own sin. And this can not just, it can be a commandment specific or a person specific. If I'm angry at a person, I don't feel guilty when I sin against them. And so the devil has me as his tool to hurt other people. He uses my anger. He uses my, the violence in my heart. To, he does it, uses it to do damage. So that, so wherever the point of the hardness of the heart is, that really the devil has us there. And then above it, like if the devil were to tempt me to commit mass murder, I probably wouldn't be so tempted to do that. But if the devil just gets me like right here, like that thing that bothers me just for a little bit, but not too much. And then what happens is the callousness of my conscience just keeps growing like this. Oh, look, you got away with it or whatever. It just keeps growing like that. And so the devil has now more access to to use us against hurting other people. So the devil has two games that he's playing in our conscience. He's trying to sense it. He's trying to desensitize us to our own sin. And, um, and, then, and when he does that, it does damage for us, for our repentance. And it also uses us to do damage to other people. Now the Holy spirit. And I think this is why Luther says that every day we go to work singing a hymn of the 10 commandments is the Holy spirit is doing the opposite. The Holy spirit is trying to sensitize our conscience so that more and more things that we do wrong in breaking God's law bother us. So, uh, so the little things start to get to us even more, and we realize what sinners we are. That is, that is part of our Christian maturity, and it's a dangerous thing. It, again, in our own Lutheran circles, that we think that like callousness towards sin is a mark of spiritual maturity. That's the that is not the case. It's the opposite. The Lord is always sensitizing us to our own sinfulness, whereas there's a there's kind of a generosity that he wants to give us towards the sins of our neighbors, but uh, 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 a sensitivity in the conscience to our own sins so that we can repent and the Lord can come and give us a clean conscience, not by our own works, but by the blood of Jesus. So the, the cultivation of a, of a tender conscience is again part of the work that we're doing against the flesh, this, this growing disgust in our own sinful flesh and a growing desire for the things of the spirit of God. This is part of our Christian life of sanctification. Yeah. I think that's where a, a healthy examination, like every night before you go to bed, like thinking through your day, where have I sinned? Like, cause if you think through your day and think I wasn't convicted when I yelled at my kids at that point in the day, but you think back through it and you're like, Oh wait, I did that. And then you can repent of that. And then, Oh yeah, Lord, you're I I didn't even the moment I didn't feel guilty about it, but now I look back and I I really blew it there with my kids. I need to confess that to you and and to them as well. Um that can help our conscience a ton to become more sensitive. I always tell people if you're growing in the faith, 
you don't think you need Jesus less. You think you need him more because you see your sin for what it is more and more and more. The depth of your wickedness, it just gets revealed to you more and more. You become more desperate for God's gifts because you realize that you're going to blow it all if it's left up to you. And your sin can consume you and others quickly. Um, But I love that uh, thermometer. I've used a similar analogy, but um, not the thermometer. I like the thermometer analogy a lot. I think it's very helpful. So uh, I hope people run with that and think about that and uh, pray about it to ask what, what are those areas where I haven't met that temperature yet? (laughs) And what areas am I blind to? What are my blind spots with my sins that I don't feel convicted about? Because we all have them. Uh, We just, if we're not careful, it becomes more and more until we're completely consumed. So that's right. That's right. We're uh, almost out of time, but related to that question, there was another couple other questions. I'll ask just one of them though. Um, let me find it to make sure I don't mess it up. Basically, she wanted to know, how, how do I talk to my teens about women's ordination and related to that, the LGBTQ type of issues, which we kind of briefly covered in, in one sense, but how does she convey to especially her teenagers that these things go against the Bible? Um, her concern is teaching her kids in the faith. We had a similar one to that. A real concern for their kids in online, like being online stuff, getting consumed by these things and being led astray by these things. Um, but how would you talk to teens about women's ordination or LGBTQ issues? Like, what's a simple approach to teens that you would take? Yeah. Yeah. Well, God be praised that men and women are different. I mean, that's the key thing, right? And the you know the key the key difference between men and women is that the Lord has built the women to be mothers and men to be fathers. So it's built into nature. And the Lord has also shown forth that difference in the office of the ministry in the third article, the creed in the church, where he's appointed men, not all men, but some to be pastors, and he's excluded all women from the office. And so these differences between men and women are um, arranged by God. And, and we should rejoice in those distinctions because the the man is for the woman and the woman is for the man. In other words, there's a, there's a purpose that is even built into nature and built into the church of service one to the other. So that, so that Paul talks about this. In fact, when he's talking about why women are not um, to be pastors is the woman is taken from the man. But of course, then, the, uh, the man comes forth from the woman. So Eve came from, from Adam and every other Adam came out of Eve. So there's this complementary beauty that's built into creation. And it's really where most of the fun in the world comes from. And when we try to flatten that and try to make men and women um, equal in every way and blur the distinctions, it just is, it's wrong and it's boring. <laughs> so maybe that's the best way to think of it with the kids is this is boring. If if men do everything that women do and women do everything that men do, what's the what's the fun in that? So here so here's maybe my best my best parable to to kind of to 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 point out these differences. I want you to imagine that because the Lord has made us each whole except for one part. Like I have a complete a skeletal system and I have a complete muscular system and I have a complete digestive system and I have a complete circulatory system. The one system that is not complete in me 
or in any person is the reproductive system. The Lord has taken that system and divided it up. So the men have part and women have part. And if there was just an Adam or just an Eve, there would be no children. There would be no humanity. And so the, the future, the hope is in the two becoming one. But if we could just imagine it like this. Now, I, I don't know how, I don't know how, let's just try. See if you, you can tell me, no, this is not. Hope. But instead of, instead of splitting up our reproductive system into two, if the Lord had split up our digestive system into two. So if you wanted, Pastor Packer, you could have your own babies. <laughs> you it would be as many as you wanted all the time. That'd be great. But you could not have lunch by yourself because the Lord gave men the stomachs and women would probably get the mouths. And may, I don't know how all the things would work. But in other words, to have lunch, you would have to, a man and a woman would have to find each other. And one would chew and the other would digest. And, you know, all the digestive work would happen only when the two were together. Maybe they have to saddle up next to each other. And I don't know how it would exactly work. And you'd have lunch and then off you went. And let's just say that if you had a meal every day with a different woman, it would be also very strange. And also you'd get sick and things like that. Just natural stuff. So, so you know what you would have is you would have marriage. Not, for the, not to have children, to, but to have breakfast. Right? There would be a man and a woman and they'd be paired up to one another and they would they would eat together and they'd live their lives together and they'd have all this arrangement so that they could they they could come together because they only have half of that system, the digestive system. And so okay, so imagine that's the situation. And then two men and 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 that putting those a man and a woman together would be marriage. Well, imagine that two men came up to you and said, Well, you know what? We love each other. And we want to be married to each other. And you say to them, well, okay, I'm, I'm glad you love each other, but who's going to eat the sandwich? <laughs> like, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't even make sense. Like, it, there, there's no way to imagine if if marriage is a con, it has any connection to the bio, biological reality of the fact that a man and a woman are required for humanity to continue to exist, then this doesn't, it doesn't even compute. It's just nonsense. Two men being married, two women being married, like who's going to digest the food? You can, you could eat a lot, but where does it go? And there's, it just doesn't, it, it's, it, it's non-comprehensible when we think of it um, according to how the Lord has, has arranged it. And so, and so that I think that parable is helpful to sort of reground our thinking in what's real. If marriage is the public recognition of the most intense emotional relationship that two adults have with one another, which is basically how we've defined it since Obergefell, and really how we've defined it since Disney, maybe how we've defined it since the Romantic movement, then okay, if two men want to be married or whatever, what 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 does it even matter? But if there are differences that the Lord is has uh, built into creation, then the institution should reflect that reality. And that's our basic idea. But if two men want to come, we say, well, who's going to, how are you going to have babies? What? That doesn't, it doesn't even, it's not even like a, it can't even make sense. It, it, it's, it, it's so different from how we think of reality that it doesn't even, it's not even, no. It's not an argument to be argued against. It it doesn't even approach the, I don't know, I, I'm running out of words there. I don't know if that's helpful or not. 
Yeah, I think the grounding, being grounded in reality of what God's word says versus what culture says or what we even think we see or understand, I think is extremely helpful. I just wrote a, a chapter for, for a book project coming that's coming up and on the issue of transgenderism. And I mentioned there that one of the things we're seeing to like greatly oversimplify philosophy and stuff, but we're seeing the fruits of follow your hearts, right? Whatever I believe in my heart's what's real. That's reality is what I believe in my heart. And then the will to power, I can make whatever I believe in my heart happen, right? Whereas the Bible's constantly telling us the opposite. Don't trust your heart. Your heart's deceitful and wicked. And you're, you're not the boss. You don't have the will to power. You can't make whatever you want to happen, happen. That's the lie of the devil, right? So those two things I think people are driven by. And I think for teens to understand, like, look, your heart is not where truth is found. It's in God's and his words. What he says to you is what reality is. Even if everyone around you says this isn't the case, we have to listen to what God's word says and hear and believe that, submit ourselves to that. Same with, um, well, I, if if I want to do this, then I can do it because I have the will to power to make it happen. And rather than saying that, but submitting ourselves to say, well, what does God say I should be doing? What does he say must happen in my life? Uh, I, I think stepping back and seeing the way God's, what has God created? How has he redeemed it? What does he want for me? Who am I in Christ? Uh, what's my identity in him? How do I find my security in him? How do I find my meaning for life in him in my baptism? Uh, reorient ourselves to quit thinking that my heart is the center of all life and understanding. Um, so that's that's how I tend to, to approach that is quit, quit listening to those lies, which as you mentioned, I mean, honestly, like, right, Disney movies, follow your heart. It's going to lead you in the right direction. That kind of stuff's everywhere in kids shows. And then they grow up and they think, this is this is what I can do. This is what I believe is true about myself. I can make it happen. Yeah, when has following your heart been ever a good idea? That's your two things about the kind of the epistemology and ethics of Gnosticism in this way that like, what does Gnosticism teach me to know? My inner reality is reality. And what does it teach me to do is conquer that reality uh, manipulate that reality to make my own what authentic self come forth yeah oy, oy, oy. it's bad so um so what we want to do is well maybe this someone pointed this out this is really nice that the like the pro-abortion movement this uses the words of institution this well, Peter, is my Peter body. That's Peter Kreeft. This is my body. But is, this is now also the transgender thing. This is my body. So what does this mean? This is my body. I can do what I want. This is my body. I can do what I want. We have to have the words of Jesus to give us a shape. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. And, and when we then receive the body of Jesus as his followers, then we can say now also, this is my body given for you. It's not given for me. This is my body given by God also for you. So now I'm set to be, how does, so Justice Kennedy grabbed this language from the Massachusetts uh, decision in the Obergefell decision. And he says that marriage is one of the uh, key moments in our, in our life of self-definition or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that I use marriage now to define myself. This is the, no, marriage is me handing my life over to carry and then to our children it's the and the office of the holy ministry is the same way it's a handing over here i'm now to be martyred for your sake 
so that my the, the Lord has given us our bodies, truly given us our bodies, but not for our own sake, not to not to be like the the clay that we're going to mold and shape, but rather to be in service to to my neighbor that the Lord gives me. And that's a completely different way of understanding not only what's true but also what's good. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good note to end on. We're a little over time from what we said we wanted to do for the day, but um, hopefully, uh, keep letting us know if this is helpful. And if you have more questions, you can put them in the comments on YouTube. I, I was checking those out. That's where we got a couple of the questions. I can't believe, I never look at the comments. So, Pastor, but do you, all you watching now, you know that Pastor Packer's scanning the comments. So I'm that's lurking, great. You, try checking <laughs> it out. Wolfmuller.co slash contact is the way to send an email also. And we'll try to get to these questions each week. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, Wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday to sign up for the free weekly uh, newsletter there, the Substack, uh, And we send out a bunch of stuff uh, there as well. You can also respond to that and uh, get a hold of you. We try to give away a free book uh, once a month. So thanks again for riding along. Uh, God's peace be with you.